I'll be reading from Acts 14. And it came about that in Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together, and they spoke in such a manner that a great multitude believed, both of Jews and Greeks. And the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Therefore they spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to the cities of Lyconia, Lystra, and Derbe, and the surrounding region. And there they continued to preach the good news. And at Lystra, there was sitting a certain man without strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze upon him, had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk, and the multitude saw what Paul had done, and they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. But when the apostles and Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed into the crowd, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We're also men of the same nature as you, and we preach the good news to you in order that you should turn from these vain things to the living God who made heaven and earth and all the sea and all that's in them. And in the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own way. And yet he did not leave himself without witness. In that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And even saying these things with difficulty restrained the crowds from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having won over the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he arose and he entered the city. And the next day he went away with Barnabas to Derbe. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Atalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch and from which they had commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they spent a long time with the disciples. Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us to participate in your work. You call us to it. Forgive us when we're timid, when we're afraid or ashamed. 
God, we shouldn't be. Look at all that you did. The suffering our Lord went through. Oh my. And you did that so that we could have this eternal life. Help us to love our neighbors and our enemies the same way. To care for them enough to suffer as well. So that some of them might be redeemed. We ask you to help us this morning to hear your word and act upon it. In Jesus' wonderful name we've come to you. Thank you, brother. Good morning. In John's gospel account, the very last words that Jesus spoke to his disciples as a group before he was arrested that same night are found in the very last chapter of John 16. Here are those words. Verse 33. These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Here in verse 22 of Acts 14, Paul presents a very similar exhortation to all the churches that God has planted through him and his co-workers in Asia Minor. Continue in the faith, knowing that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That's what this chapter, Acts 14, is about. Continue in the faith, knowing that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That entry into the kingdom is not conditional for those who have trusted in Christ. It's guaranteed. But the only way there is through tribulation. That's, that is the normal Christian life, and that's what this is presenting it's about believers staying on task as Christ's ambassadors, knowing that it will only be through much tribulation and opposition that the church of Jesus Christ will be spread over the whole earth. And knowing that that very outcome is guaranteed by the one who saved us to use us for his glory. As Paul and Barnabas after they shake off the, the dust of their feet in Pisidian Antioch, they, they then head eastward in Asia Minor toward this region called Lyconia. And there are three cities that they will travel to. The first is Iconium. In, in Iconium, uh, they in, encounter an unholy alliance, and they meet that unholy alliance with a very bold witness for Christ. When they presented the gospel of Jesus Christ at the synagogue in Iconium, which was their normal mode to go to the synagogue first, it says a great multitude of Hebrew and Greek-speaking Jews came to faith. A sizable new church was born that first Sabbath that Paul and Barnabas and his co-workers, their co-workers came to Iconium. But it took no time at all for a very fierce opposition to arise in that city. Verse 2, starting in verse 2, it says, But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles, and they embittered them, embittered them against the brethren. Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Uh, twice in, in those verses and then verse five, uh, there and in verse 5 that comes right after, Luke tells us that the Jews linked up with Gentiles. 
Jews connected, they formed an alliance with Gentiles. That was a highly unusual state of affairs. This time they linked up with Gentiles to oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ and the messengers who brought that gospel. In the New Testament, there are two kinds of unions that we encounter between Jews and Gentiles. The first is in Christ, and the second is against Christ. And those are pretty much the only two things that bring Jews and Gentiles together. In chapter 11 at Antioch of Syria, we saw the first kind of union between Jews and Gentiles, and that kind required a miracle, supernatural work by which the Holy Spirit brought Jews and Gentiles into union with one another by bringing them all into union, everlasting union with Jesus Christ. And that happens only, only by God's grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Every point of division that ever existed between those two groups, Jews and Gentiles, and there were many, was done away with in Christ. It was wiped out. And the same is true for every point of distinction between groups of people in the world, even today, that has ever caused division between groups. In Christ, God creates a miraculous unity that supersedes and renders insignificant all points of division between rich and poor, male and female, slave and free, educated and uneducated, influential and unknown, black and white and brown and red and any other color of skin that exists. And this miraculous God-sourced unity is permanent. It lasts throughout our earthly lives and it lasts all the way through eternity. It's created by God and not by men, so it cannot be undone by men. Now, the second kind of union that we encounter between Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament is shared opposition to Jesus and to those who represent Jesus. In this case, it was a combination of devout Jewish authorities and utterly pagan Roman authorities who conspired together uh, I mean, in, in the case when Jesus was arrested, it was devout Jewish, Jewish authorities and Roman pagan authorities that conspired together to, to uh, arrest Jesus on the night that Jesus, Judas betrayed him and to crucify him the next day. Alliances just as unexpected as that are still being formed today with the same essential goal, to oppose Christ and to suppress the advance of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. People with all manner of different political, social, religious, and personal agendas uh, happily join hands together, uh, very strange bedfellows, in order to oppose even the whole notion of absolute truth, but most especially to oppose the one in whom all truth uh, is, is embodied, and that is Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul speaks of the truth that is in Christ Jesus. When believers have the courage to stand on God's word and to proclaim the truth of redemption in Jesus Christ alone, 
those courageous believers can be 100% certain that men and women who oppose Jesus will set aside their differences in order to present a united front against the one whom we proclaim. We see it all the time. We certainly see it today. What I hope that we will all see most clearly, though, in Acts chapter, seven, uh, Acts chapter 14, the first seven verses, is not, not the impressiveness of that unholy union against Christ, but the courage and boldness and power of Christ's ambassadors in the midst of that opposition from that unholy union. The word, therefore, at the beginning of verse 3 here in Acts 14 is stunning. <laughs> Immediately after, after Luke tells us that the unbelieving Jews united in Iconium with unbelieving Gentiles and they, they, the Jews embittered those Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas and the brethren, Luke says, therefore, they, the disciples of Jesus, spent a long time there, speaking boldly with reliance on the Lord. It's, it's, it looks like it's saying because they were, they were very militantly opposed, they spent a long time there. They didn't just hightail it and leave. Now, they did end up leaving, but that wasn't their first choice. <laughs> they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. When that unholy assembly of Jews and Gentiles resolved to stone Paul and Barnabas and their friends to death, they indeed fled to the nearby cities of Lyconia, uh, which was Lystra and Derbe. Now, it had become clear to them that it was finally time to move to their next destination. But by then, they had spent a long time in Iconium boldly proclaim, uh, proclaiming the gospel, knowing all the time that the opposition was mounting. It was it was building strength, and the Jews were gathering up Gentiles to join them in their opposition. Through their courageous witness, uh, the Holy Spirit had, had created a church there in, in this place where there were so many who opposed uh, the gospel of Jesus. The next city that they came to is Lystra. It's no more than a day's walk from Iconium, so they didn't go a long way to escape this persecution. Now, God performs two mighty miracles during the time that Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra. Uh, and those miracles are at both ends of the account of their time in Lystra. They're like, a, they're like bookends. It, this, it struck me as a persecution sandwich with miracle whip because, because there's miracle... Uh, anyway, it's just... <laughs> The first healing, the healing at the front end of, this, of their time in Lystra was the healing of a man lame from birth. And the second is the healing of the, of the Apostle Paul after he has been stoned, dragged out of the city, and assumed to be dead. Now, everything between those two bookends could easily have been cause for great discouragement in the hearts of, of the these missionaries. But Paul and his co-workers saw the hand of God working mightily in their midst. They got what their master was doing. 
And they were greatly encouraged, even as they were uh, targets of, of a mortal threat. The marvelous point that's driven home by these miracles at each end of their time in Lystra is that God is at work through them. God is accomplishing what he intends to, no matter what God's enemies are doing to try to sidetrack his agenda. Now, don't miss the remarkable similarity of the miracle that God performs at the front end of this visit in Lystra uh, to the miracle that he performed through Peter in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 3. In both cases, a man who had been lame from birth was instantly healed, and he was able not only to stand, but to leap up and to walk. And in both cases, the man did not ask to be healed. Isn't that fascinating? God is just manifesting his power, and he's attesting to his message and his messengers. That's what signs and wonders are always for. The similarities there are not coincidental. Paul, God's chosen ambassador to the Gentiles, is now attested by God as his approved messenger, the same way that Peter, his first ambassador to the Jews, had been attested. Same God, same Holy Spirit, same power, same message, proclaiming the same Christ and Savior. And what the missionaries initially experienced in Lystra was very different than what they had experienced in Pisidian, Antioch, and Iconium, uh, where they had gone initially to Jews. The people in Lystra, by the way, Lystra, uh, Lystra did not have a synagogue. That's why they didn't go to the synagogue. They went to Gentiles because there were very few Jews in the city. The people of that region of Asia Minor were familiar with a fable that claimed that the Greek gods Zeus and Hermes had in some time past taken human form and they had come down in that part of Asia Minor and they had visited many people in a community. Most of the people showed them no hospitality, but this one elderly couple showed them hospitality. And the couple that showed them hospitality and took them in was was blessed very greatly, and all the rest were cursed and suffered greatly. So the inhabitants of Lystra, when they saw this man who had been lame from birth healed, they said, okay, these two guys are Zeus and Hermes, and they're back, and we're not going to make the same mistake twice. So they bring in, they bring in a, a priest from the temple of Zeus outside the city, and he comes in and he brings him offerings and sacrifices. Well, it's fascinating to me that they conclude, the people conclude that, uh, that Paul is Hermes and Barnabas is Zeus. Zeus was the, uh, he was the preeminent god among the gods of Mount Olympus. And I think it's, it, it's interesting that, uh, you know, these, these people who lived in the, in the Greek Empire and now in the Roman Empire, they were used to tyrannical leaders at the top level that they were very distant from the people, very much unlike the one true God. And so they, let, they figured the one that was doing the least talking, that would be, that would be Zeus. <laughs> and the other one would be the messenger, Hermes. Uh, the response of Paul and Barnabas to the worship of these pagan Gentiles looks very much like the response of Peter in chapter 10 when Cornelius attempted to worship him. 
Paul and Barnabas very vigorously declare that they themselves are men of the same nature as the people of Lystra standing before them. It's interesting, they do not launch into a message that recounts the history of God's witness to his long-promised Messiah through the Jewish prophets as they had done in the most, with the mostly Jewish audiences that we saw previously. They're now dealing with rank pagans who know and care very little about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The message that Luke records here that is proclaimed by Paul to this crowd of pagans is really much more pre-evangelistic than evangelistic. It does not mention the name of Jesus. Uh, it does not mention sin or righteousness or judgment or redemption in Christ. It's not the gospel. Instead, Paul appeals to God's revelation of himself in nature, what we would call general revelation rather than special revelation. Citing the creation account in the Old Testament, Paul declares that there is only one God who created all of mankind and everything that men behold. An infinite, personal, all-powerful, and caring God who provides rain and fruitful harvest to all men in all places. God's creation does not point to a pantheon of selfish and capricious gods who engage in petty conflicts with one another, as is taught in both Greek and Roman mythology. Instead, God's creation displays a unity of design and purpose in all places on earth. I have to say, uh, we've talked about this some in our, in our young adults group, but the, the very clearest evidence in nature of what God calls, of what Paul calls God's invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature in Romans 1, is us. It's the image bearers of God. It doesn't take much looking if you're looking at a human being to understand some very powerful truths about the nature and character of God. And I'll leave it to you to contemplate that. No man could look at the only creature created in the image of the one true God without be beholding compelling evidence of the ways and nature of that God. But until God transforms the hearts of men to accomplish the truth that he reveals about himself, people in every place on earth suppress that truth and unrighteousness. That's what Romans 1 says. God has made, his, made himself known through his handiwork, but men push that truth under the rug and they exchange the creature for the creator. They put the creature in, in the creator's seat. Here in Lystra, after Paul proclaims one God as creator and sustainer of all creation, the crowds continue trying to offer sacrifices to them. That lasts only until the Jews who have come in from Pisidian, Antioch, and Iconium win over the Gentile multitudes with their harsh accusations against Paul and Barnabas. And now the same crowd that only moments before considered Paul and Barnabas to be gods is stirred into a murderous rage. Egged on by the Jews, they stone Paul to the point of unconsciousness. And they drag him out of the 
out of the city, assuming that he's dead. As the disciples then gather around the unresponsive body of Paul, Paul stands up and walks back into that city from which he had just been dragged. Friends, this is a world-class miracle. Actually, it's a heaven-class miracle. Paul had been stoned to the point of sustained unconsciousness. Do you know what kills somebody when they're stoned? Head trauma, brain damage. He was in such a deep coma that he, hadn't, he didn't have sufficient signs of breath for them to think that he was alive. But he stands up and he walks back into the same city where he had just been stoned. The very next day, Paul walks with Barnabas to the next city in their, in their itinerary, and that's Derby. Verse 21 tells us simply that after they had preached the gospel to that city of Derby and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And there were no great miracles and no great opposition that is recorded in the town of Derby. God prospered the gospel there, and Paul and Barnabas uh, saw many souls, many souls added to the kingdom of God. In verses 21 to 26, Paul and Barnabas now are circling back, and they're, they're following their trajectory all the way back through those same cities. And they go city by city all the way back to where they had landed on Asia Minor, on the coast of Asia Minor at Perga. Um, and during that time, as they were traveling through these different cities, they were going to the same places in which they had faced very fierce opposition most of the time. Uh, bear in mind that whenever they left a place under persecution, it was not to go hide. It was never that. It was never that. These, were, these men were amazingly courageous. I, I don't know about you, but if I had been stoned to the point of everybody thinking that I was dead, I might try to find a different line of work. <laughs> Luke tells us that as they went from city to city retracing their steps, they went about, quote, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. We'll come back to that very important statement in just a bit, but I want to look briefly at what Paul and Barnabas did to ensure that godly leadership would continue after they left this region of Asia Minor in each of these churches that were brand new. In, uh, in verse 23, it says, and when they had appointed, when they had appointed elders for the believers in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Note that the word elders is plural. In every church, they appointed multiple elders. And as they did so, they prayed and fasted demonstrating a pervasive dependence on God to be the true shepherd of his church. And then they commended those saints to the Lord, to Jesus Christ in whom they had believed. Now this, beloved, this is the pattern for leadership in Christ's church throughout the rest of the New Testament. And God means for us to pay attention to and to follow this model 
When we fail to do so, we replace God's way of governing his church with our way. God's way is not the CEO model. Plurality of leadership in every local church ensures that there's only one chief shepherd. And that chief shepherd is over all of the churches. By the way, I know this will rub some people the wrong way, but the phrase senior pastor and chief shepherd are exactly synonymous. It's not the most efficient way to govern an organization as the world measures efficiency, but it is without a doubt the best way to oversee the affairs of Christ's church so that no man puts himself in Christ's seat. And that's why we do what we do here at Community Bible Chapel. We have nine elders. I have one vote among nine elders. I have eight elders. You guys have nine. I agree with Bob's comment at our sermon discussion this week that it's virtually certain that at least some of the elders appointed in each city over these overwhelmingly Gentile churches were Jews. At this earliest point in the life of Christ's church, the closest that Paul and Barnabas could come to appointing tested under-shepherds in each local community of saints was to select believing Jews who knew the Old Testament scriptures very well when they came to Christ. And guys, Timothy is a wonderful example of this. You'd go just a couple of chapters after this and we meet Timothy, and he's the son of a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. And his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice, had taught him the Old Testament scriptures since the time he was born. And when you get to First and Second Timothy, especially 2 Timothy chapters 2 and 3, the central qualification that Paul cites, the primary attribute that Paul raises about Timothy that makes him qualified to be handed over the nurture of a church as, as influential as the church at Ephesus is the fact that Timothy knew the Scriptures from the time he was a kid. Everyone who wants to unhitch the, the church from the Old Testament is missing an incredible wealth of provision that God has given to his church. You need, we need to know the Old Testament, guys. Another point Bob raised on Wednesday that, uh, that, we, that should be mentioned here is that personal evangelism is not the end point of our assignment as ambassadors of Christ. That end point is to plant and to build up churches that multiply and plant other churches. Paul never considered his job to be finished, even when a church had been started in a particular city. He understood very well that he had to nurture those churches so they would become strong and mature and would spread the gospel and would start other churches in other places. By the way, every one of Paul's letters that was written to a church was written to believers so that they would be, it would be built up. This is why Paul and Barnabas retraced their steps, went back through all these cities where new believers and new churches had, had sprung up by the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, verse 22 gives us the heart of Paul's exhortation and encouragement to each of those new Christian communities. He strengthened the soul of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations... We must enter the kingdom of God. 
One of the most vitally important things that you and I and every other believer on this earth needs to know with great clarity is that it is through many tribulations that we will be made mightily useful to God to spread His church on earth. There is no other way that it happens. And it is through many tribulations that we will soon and certainly see the kingdom of God. Paul says in Romans 8, 17, that if, if we are children of God, we are heirs, heirs also of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. What he's saying is this is the normal Christian life. First you suffer and then comes the glory. All right. Tribulation, uh, as, again, is not a condition for entry into God's kingdom. It's just a fact. We are saved not by works, but by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But brothers and sisters, God intends for us to know that until he brings us into the glorious kingdom of our Savior and Master, tribulation is the path that we will certainly walk. It's the path of true and eternal usefulness to God and it's also the path of the very greatest joy that can be experienced this side of glory. Opposition is one of God's most constant means of advancing his kingdom. We've seen it over and over already in Acts. And it continues, this continues to be the mechanism, the means by which God spreads his church. It's so amazing to me that unless Paul had, had persecuted the church at the very beginning, Christians would have stayed in Jerusalem. And now God took this militant, this militant persecutor of the church and he uses him to be persecuted for Christ and to be a, magnificent, a magnificently used instrument to spread the gospel. So very much of, of Christian teaching and I have to say Christian music these days seems focused on personal deliverances from the effects of the curse that God is supposed to bring about because we have trusted in Jesus. That's the way we seem to see it. But brothers and sisters, when does the Bible promise that our mourning and crying and pain is going to end? When Jesus brings the new Jerusalem down out of heaven as a bride made ready for her husband, when he Re recreates the heavens and the earth and reconciles all things to himself. And the curse is done away with forever. And you know what? It's not until then that the mourning and crying and pain and sorrow and death are put away. It's not until then. And until then, our very great joy, the joy that Peter in 1 Peter 1 describes as joy inexpressible and full of glory, comes not from temporary deliverances from tribulation, but he says it comes in the midst of manifold trials, many tribulations. It can't be had. That joy inexpressible and full of glory can't be had any other way. It's the joy that springs up from personal knowledge of God, personal usefulness to God, and lives that display God and honor God and advance His agenda, and in hearts that, that always look forward and upward and not around. 
for fulfillment and satisfaction. We are always looking for the fulfillment of God's promise. That is the anchor of our soul. Last two verses of this morning's chapter are just excellent. It says, And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, this they, when they arrived, they came back to the city of Syrian Antioch, which was their home base from which they launched this missionary enterprise. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they spent a long time with the disciples. I just love this. When Paul and Barnabas and the rest of this world's first ever team of Christian missionaries arrive back at their home base after their first missionary journey, they do what missionaries have done ever since. They give a mission report, an update, right? And like the miracles at both end of their visit to Lystra, the report stands in stark contrast to the events that are recorded in the, in the narrative of their journey. They reported all things that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Guys, not what people had done to them, but what God had done with them. Isn't that cool? With the result that the floodgates of faith had been opened by God among the Gentiles. That was their report. Now, if their assessment of the success of their mission had been based on what people had done to them, it would have been a pretty dismal report, right? Well, let's see. At Cyprus, we were opposed by this Jewish magician who did everything that he could to keep us from sharing the gospel with the governor of the island. At Pisidian Antioch, the, the synagogue leaders loudly contradicted everything that we said speaking blasphemies, and then they leveraged all the most powerful women and leading men of the city, and they ran us out of that whole region of Syria. So we went over to Asia Minor, and when we got to Iconium, unbelieving Jews embittered many of the Gentiles against us, and they, they got them so stirred up that they, they intended to stone us to death. So we moved on to Lystra and Derby. At Lystra, things started well, but that didn't last very long. After God healed the lame man through Paul, the people decided that we must be gods, and you know, so they, they brought us sacrifices. And then a bunch of Jews from Antioch and Iconium stirred up the crowd, and they did stone Paul. They stoned him to unconsciousness and dragged him out of the city and left him for dead. Thankfully, God preserved his life, but you know, all in all, it wasn't quite what we would have hoped for for the first outing of the world's first ever Christian missionary team. But that wasn't the report, was it? For these first ambassadors of Jesus, most of the people to whom they proclaimed the gospel, overwhelmingly most, flatly rejected what they proclaimed. And they didn't just deny Christ. Most of them militantly opposed the messengers and even did their best to kill them. But these missionaries were not, they were not deterred. But they weren't just undeterred, they were delighted. As they went on from one city to the next, the last verse of chapter 13 told us they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So when they got back to their home base, their report was all about God's miraculous work through them to open many hearts to the good news and to bring many into the kingdom of God. 
Beloved, the only way that you and I can have and can maintain that kind of assessment of things is if we see as God sees and not as men see. Again, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The the only way that that resolve that fills us with joy and keeps us on task, carrying on with the work of Christ, the only way that that resolve can persist in the midst of that kind of opposition is if we heed Paul's exhortation here in verse 22, continue in the faith, knowing that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations, God's grace always prevails. Not in spite of many tribulations, but through many tribulations. It doesn't happen any other way. The advance of the kingdom of Christ on earth doesn't happen any other way. This calls for a reset for many believers. It calls for a a, a sea change, a major adjustment to how to the grid that we apply to interpret the things that happen to us. It's a it's a, a radical and dramatic change of expectation, is it not? And when we get it right, when we embrace what God is telling us here, we st- we stop running from pain, thinking that that's the way to get to pleasure. Pleasure is relationship and usefulness in Christ. That's pleasure. I want to say it is, not, it is not when our lives are predictable and under our control that we experience the great victory of God's amazing grace. It's, it is when they are unpredictable and out of our control that we experience the magnitude of God's amazing grace. I'll end where we began this morning with the final words of Jesus to his disciples shortly before his arrest and execution. John 16, 33, These things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. That verse isn't just a statement of fact. It's an exhortation. Take courage. Take courage. And the ground, the wonderful basis of that courage to which Jesus calls all of us as his disciples is the absolute certainty that we are on the side of the one who has overcome the world. When people loudly and stridently oppose our message, Jesus prevails. When people distort our message and our purpose, Jesus prevails. When people falsely accuse us, Jesus prevails prevails, when we find ourselves at a loss to know how to respond to the insanity and absurdity of those who oppose our message, Jesus prevails. Even when our brothers and sisters in Christ or we ourselves fall short of the diligence that the gospel demands of us, Jesus prevails. Paul said in Romans eight thirty seven, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for, that, for this marvelous promise. Thank you for this very different way of seeing things and, and for being so very clear about it over and over and over. Father, only you can 
can make our hearts embrace this, uh, this reality. But this is where joy is found. This is where eternal purposefulness and usefulness is found. This is where all the things that are desirable is found for us, this side of glory. It is in the midst of tribulation. It is through tribulation for Christ's sake. It is not in spite of that tribulation. Lord, we ask you to burn this into our hearts. Teach us to embrace it. Teach us to expect it. Teach us to walk always filled with joy inexpressible and overflowing with the glory of Christ. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.